Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. We all know William Shakespeare. The most famous author of all time, writer of 37 plays, 154 sonnets, several epic poems, and why we are here today. But what if I told you Shakespeare never wrote a single word? Hello and welcome to The Plays The Thing. That audio that you just heard was from the 2011 movie titled Anonymous, which supposes that William Shakespeare wasn't really an author at all, but was just an ambitious actor. And I, a few years ago, saw the preview and immediately dismissed it because it just seemed like such a silly question. We've resolved that. But I spoke with my friend, Sarah Jane Bentley, recently, and she stumbled across a book that made her rethink the whole Shakespeare authorship question. Sarah Jane, welcome back to the show. Hi, Tim. It's good to be with you talking about this somewhat controversial subject of who was Shakespeare. So you and I, if I'm not mistaken, have always kind of dismissed the idea that William Shakespeare isn't really the author of the plays that we read and discuss on this podcast. I mean, I, I can be I can be kind of snooty about it, like, oh my gosh, people are still talking about this. But you recently rethought this. Can you can you tell us a little bit about this book that you read that made you think maybe there's some substance to the people who say Shakespeare wasn't educated enough. He wasn't, you know, um, tell us about the book and why it made you rethink the question of Shakespeare's authorship. Sure. Well, first of all, I think I should say I would never have even countenanced reading a book that questioned the authority of, of the story of the Stratford Shakespeare, because right. I was 
completely convinced that that was all just kind of hoax nonsense. And I I read this book by Neville Gwynn called um, Gwynn's William Shakespeare because I thought it was just going to be a sort of literary analysis. I had no idea that it was actually you an stumbled argument. into this innocently. Yeah, I didn't realize it was going to be an argument about Shakespeare not being who I had been taught he was. And yeah. so and by then I was reading it and and he has a very light and fine rhetorical style. He's an excellent he's an excellent rhetorician and arguer. Oh nice. Yeah. And so I just kept reading it and by the end I thought, you know what? I I think there's something in this. Really? I think you might be right. Yeah. Really? Okay, so let me set up a little bit about what the kind of like I don't know, rules of the conversation are the rules of this, this debate. So those people who think that William Shakespeare didn't write the plays that we think of as William Shakespeare's plays usually posit some other author. A really popular um, counter author is Francis Bacon, who's best known to us through the kind of Baconian method of scientific inquiry. Another popular alternate author is Edward Van de Veer, who is kind of in the Queen's court. And so those people are called the anti-Stretfordians, the people who think Shakespeare couldn't have written Shakespeare's plays. And here's the, here are just some of the reasons why they're skeptical that this guy, William Shakespeare, son of a glove maker, couldn't have written the plays that we cherish and adore. First one, a glovemaker's son doesn't have the breeding, education, and background that he would need to write the most sophisticated plays in the English language. Uh, a second one is, we just don't know anything about Shakespeare. Like, if you visit Stratford-upon-Avon, um, you would see the grammar school where he supposedly went to school, but no proof of his birth date or you know, anything like that. We just don't have much about him. Um, his plays are not just written in beautiful verse, but they have just extraordinary depth and learning. And there's no way that a glovemaker's son could have access, just for example, to all the kind of various disciplines that Shakespeare appears to have real sophisticated knowledge of. So that's the kind of root... I guess, how do, how do I say it? That is the common refrain among those people who think that this poor young man, William Shakespeare, couldn't have written these plays. He just did not have access to the sort of learning and background that it seems that the author of these plays has. So does your author, Sarah Jane, take on these does he to think of these complaints as real he said like yeah these are real complaints and i'm gonna like expand my argument and show you how like shakespeare isn't really shakespeare that's right tim that is an outline of some of the troubling things about the shakespeare that we all know and love and neville gwynn really robustly goes through all of the arguments mm. And what really astonished me is that in the middle of the book, he puts in one chapter, so just two sides of a page, what we know for certain about the man officially known as William Shakespeare. Mm. And that's 
it. There's so little historical evidence that I was just astonished. And then I thought, this can't be right. And I went to, you know, the British Library website and read pages on Shakespeare. And lo and behold, it said things like, who probably went to the grammar school Mm -hmm. in Stratford Mm -hmm. and who most likely had moved to London at this time. And you just, and then I just thought, they don't actually know. This is speculation. Yeah. And so, you know, literary scholars do have a kind of literary imagination and and you can quite easily step into the realms of invention probably without realising. And I think there's such a fervour and almost a cult that has developed around Shakespeare that that we've forgotten what's fact and what's fiction. And so the speculation has been just set down as truth, I think, and taught in schools. And so for me, it really rocked my world to think, hang on a minute, Shakespeare, that's probably a nom de plume. Mm. And there obviously was a man who was William Shakespeare. Right, right. Who who was writing the plays. There was obviously somebody doing that. I don't think there was, you know, that there was like a big team of people all pretending to be Shakespeare. But as to who that was, I don't know. I don't particularly agree with Gwynn's thesis on that, although it may be right. Um, but there are at least 80 different candidates for who this person might have been. And Gwynn makes his decision on on who he thinks it is. But I mean, yeah, the, the facts that we actually have then. Well, first of all, the name given in the register in the yeah. church at Stratford is Guilelmus Phileas Johannes Shakespeare, meaning William, son of John Shakespeare. And it's spelt without an A. The, the Shakespeare is spelt without the second A. So it's Shakespeare. And this person was baptized on the 26th of April, 1564. He was the third of eight children. None of the others were even literate. They could not mm-hmm. read or write. Mm-hmm. That's astonishing, isn't it? That is astonishing. That's like a factual truth that they actually know that. I looked up, I started going kind of like a little deep dive on this and I saw that there are apparently some scribbles that, that academics agree. This is William Shakespeare's signature. Everyone agrees on this. So we can say it's like another fact in the historical record. If you actually look at the scribbles, they do not look like the scri- like the signature of a literate man. They look like someone who picked up a quill and kind of made his mark, but not with the sort of dexterity that we know comes from kind of practiced lettering. And that made, honestly, that made me think, I was like, wait a second, really? This is like, we know that this is his, we're really confident this is his handwriting. It looks terrible. Yeah. So going on that, I also, Neville Gwynne says that there are only, I think he says there are only six examples of William Shakespeare's signature Mm -hmm. in all of the documents that we have. Only six. And none of them spell William Shakespeare in the way that we do. So that's also quite astonishing that he never actually wrote the name William Shakespeare as we have it. Um, There are no diaries, um, no personal records in writing. Uh, There's just that strange will that we have. Yeah. 
um, the thing that astonished me is that his death went unremarked by anyone. So this That's was another the, big one, isn't it? Nobody was at his funeral. Nobody said anything about him. Um, no one then spoke to his family to find out more about his life. And this is a man who was famous in his day. Right. And when you look at him compared to someone like Ben Johnson or Christopher Marlowe, their names were known. We have lots of information mm -hmm, about mm -hmm, their lives. Mm -hmm. Why is Shakespeare the exception? It just seems really striking when you actually look at what we have. Um, and, and Richard Burbage, who died in 1619, who was the actor yeah. in The King's Men, there's a, the whole of London was in mourning for him. He was remembered. That's, that's a little bit, that's alarming. I, alarming because I, I I have to confess I'm kind of wed to the idea that William Shakespeare the person wrote these plays and it's not somebody else because I feel like I have a personal attachment to the man I've been reading his plays yes. <laughs> and seeing his plays you know the last 25 years or whatever so it is a little bit jarring it's quite jarring and I also went through that thinking I've been lied to mm. this, this mind that I thought I was communing with it's not what I thought, but then I actually calmed down about it. And all it's, you know, what's in a name? Uh -huh. <laughs> a rose by any other name would smell sweet. Right. Okay, so I think it's it is him. We just don't know who what his actual name was, yes. or who he really was. Yes, but there's okay. so much evidence in this book. I mean, one thing that that's apparent in Shakespeare's plays is his level of experience and knowledge about specific legal language and mm -hmm. proceedings. Mm -hmm. It's impossible, lawyers say, it's impossible that he could have known that had he not worked in the inns of court in some capacity. And so historians, detective-like, have gone looking for evidence of Shakespeare maybe working as a legal clerk, right. like a low-grade low work in a law firm. And of course, if he had done that, there would be records because lawyers keep their papers. Right. And if you're a clerk working in a law firm, you would be called repeatedly to be witness in many, many cases to stand as a witness. And there's no, there are no examples whatsoever of this William Shakespeare having done that. Right. Right. So if he did work as a legal clerk, he's the only one of which there is no record at yeah. all. And how else did he know all this legal stuff? It's puzzling, puzzling. He also demonstrates, for example, a deep knowledge and breadth of flora and fauna. But that you could probably pick up if because flora and fauna, you could have conversations with regular folk in 1600 and pick up a lot of information about the types of flowers, for example. But, but courtly intrigue and all of the sophisticated language around that discipline, you can't pick that up on the street. You can't pick that up by kind of like wandering through English gardens and having conversations with your neighbors. Mm. And even if you're a playwright who often writes and performs in front of the king, that doesn't mean you have access to the inner circle of gossip and yes. what's going on in the corridors of power, as they're called. And, and yet he does seem to have an, an insight yeah. into that world, which suggests he must have been some sort of aristocrat or nobility or even royalty who knows so i have two questions i think we should save my first question until a little bit later i want to know who who gwen 
the author of this book that you're talking about posits as the most likely real author. My second question is, does Gwen talk about why the real person, the real author would have used the nom de plume William Shakespeare? Okay. Yes, the book addresses both of those things. So I just want to talk a little bit about the overall structure of the book. Yeah. So Gwyn shocks the reader, first of all, by saying in his early chapters, the works of William Shakespeare should be banned globally. What? He says no one should read them, that they're the single most kind of evil influence on the um, public imagination that has ever existed. That's his first argument. Now, I don't agree with that. Um, and he also has to take a big sidestep because he then says in, in the same breath, he says, of course, his contribution to the language is excellent and we're setting that aside. So I sort of think, well, you can't really separate those two things. Right, right. So the reason he says this is because the plays are full of all kinds of violence and sexual sin and pride and terrible tyrants and villains um, winning the day. Right. So he, he sees that as a terrible example. Um, and then he also blames Shakespeare for writing good men of history mm. as villains. So he he sees him as bearing false witness against his neighbor. So he takes men who were good and noble men, and then he recasts them with um, this completely different twist and suggests that they were somehow depraved. So Neville Gwynn is not happy about that. And I, I take his points. I think they're very interesting. I'm not sure about banning Shakespeare. Um, Who does, so do first, you remember the, one of the names that he posits that Shakespeare has maligned unfairly? Not Richard yes, III, surely. Yes, Henry V. Really? Yeah, he says that Henry V was one of the greatest. Sorry, King Henry V was one of the worst. Mm, mm. One of the worst. And Shakespeare adores him. And, and Shakespeare paints him as a good man. Yes. Shakespeare kind of redeems him from the pit okay. with his All right. um with his play. So that's the first one. And then Richard the Third, yes, that Richard the Third is a good, has a good name, which Shakespeare then destroys. Okay. Okay. <laughs> this is he's going for it. Gwyn is going for it. He's he's a wonderful um polemicist uh -huh. and debater, I think. It's a very concise book as well. It doesn't take long to read at all. Okay. And in it, so first of all, he sets out his case. Like Shakespeare should not be read. Yeah. He counts, he gives a death count of all the plays as well, which is really funny in one chapter. <laughs> Everyone who's killed. <laughs> it's a, he's writing horror films is what Shakespeare's doing. Yeah. And he says, what does he keep quoting? He keeps saying Shakespeare is like, Mackerel in the moonlight, he shines and he stinks. Rotting mackerel in the moonlight, he shines and he stinks. That's what he keeps saying. So then the second part of the book is when he, first of all, he says, right, what are the facts that we have of Shakespeare? And he gives that one chapter of two pages where he says, basically, we don't know anything, yeah. no more than this. And then he asks, who, who was Shakespeare? And he says, you know, the authorship of the plays is as controversial as the content so, so to give a spoiler, the two questions you asked me are kind of tied together. Yeah, so right. he argues that William Shakespeare was actually Sir Francis Bacon. Okay. But then he also argues that Sir Francis Bacon was the legitimate son of Elizabeth I. Oh, really? 
and that Elizabeth I married Robert Dudley in the Tower of London in an, in a proper marriage that nobody knew about and then gave her son to the Bacon family to be brought up so that she could continue to perpetuate this uh, Tudor myth of the Virgin Queen. Oh, wow. Right. I don't know how plausible that is. Right. Gwyn cites a lot of sources. He's done his reading and he fervently believes it. So he says it's Francis Bacon. And then he goes on to look at why. And this is tied in with people who have studied Francis Bacon's manuscripts and have found in there what's called a cipher, which is a certain special kind of code that yeah. can only be cracked with a particular key. And there are two people in history, I think in the 1800s, who have discovered this and deciphered it. And in it, Francis Bacon claims to be the author of all of Shakespeare's work. No way. And he claims to be the son of Elizabeth I and Robert Dudley. No way. So that's what it says. Now, there are there are two... And, and Gwyn takes that at face value and says, like, this can't be wrong. My questions are, what if... The code has been deciphered correctly, but Francis Bacon is just making it up for fun, for posterity. Yeah. And it's just a hoax by him. Right. Like, how do you know Francis Bacon isn't lying? Yeah. Um, and then the other question, I suppose, is did the people who deciphered it get it wrong? Is that also possible? And, and so the ciphers who kind of <clears throat> crack Francis Bacon's writings are these diaries of Francis Bacon's or just like private writings or are they asserting that Bacon has smuggled these writings into like his public works? Do you know? Yeah. So they are in his public works. So he wrote the advancement of learning and um, a philosophical work as well. And then he also wrote a sort of utopian novel. And it's something to do with the way that, that the letters are formed. This then betrays the fact that there's a cipher here. And Dr. Owen and Mrs. Gallup are the two people from history who have um, deciphered the code of Francis Bacon. <laughs> this is getting, it gets deeper and deeper. It gets deeper and deeper. And there are books and books about this. I haven't read them. I've only read N.M. Gwynne's summary right. of all the different arguments right. out there. And he's obviously researched this incredibly fastidiously. Yeah. And he's convinced that the cipher is correct. <laughs> and and well, I'm sorry, did I miss it? Did you say why Bacon wouldn't have claimed authorships? Why did he hide behind the name William Shakespeare? Because he couldn't reveal his identity in the Tudor court because of who his mother was and that she was the Virgin Queen. But but is that a reason to take a nom de plume? Yes, I think so. Because if you look at Shakespeare's plays, they are they're quite pro Tudor, aren't they? They sort of yeah, advance right. the Tudor myth, right? So the power of his, I suppose, kind oh, of propaganda. I see. I see. Lies in the concealment of his identity. I see. That that makes some sense. Okay. Yeah. Roughly plausible. Yeah. So what it what it says is in the cipher, Mr. Goodale has summarized it this way. 
Francis Bacon, for the purpose of concealing the secret histories which he wrote for posterity, composed the following. All the plays of Shakespeare, Christopher Marlowe, Robert Greene and George Peel. The Anatomy of Melancholy by Robert Burton. And all the works of Edmund Spencer. It's quite a lot. That is like an (laughs) almost unfathomable amount. I mean, just Shakespeare's plays by themselves, I often think to myself, one person wrote these 37 plays. That's impossible to say nothing of the poetry, right? Mm. And to tack on Spencer on top, like to throw Spencer on top yeah, of that already just, tall just mountain. Just chuck in this fairy queen as well. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. As part of my research, Sarah Jane, I found there have been quite a few famous doubters. I'm going li- to list you a few of those names. Yeah. Mark Twain. Mm. Mark Twain didn't believe that Shakespeare was Shakespeare. Freud, Ralph Waldo Emerson, mm-hmm. Henry James, though I, apparently Henry James is more of an agnostic on the question. Charlie Chaplin, Walt that's Whitman. Walt yeah, Whitman. Charlie Chaplin. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Walt Whitman. <laughs> Appar- here, here's a quote from Twain. He dubbed all Stratfordians, the people who, like us, you know, maybe until this podcast, believe that William Shakespeare is William Shakespeare, he said, they're all troglodytes, thugs, stretfordolators, stretperioids, <laughs> bangalores, harumphrodites, bandoliers, blatherskites, buccaneers, and muscovites. Well, we don't want to be any of we those We don't want to be any of those things. No, we want to be enlightened. Right. Well, other famous literary people who didn't believe in the Stratford Shakespeare... Count Leo Nikolaevich Tolstoy, no less. He didn't believe. No. Uh, I know that he was angry. He like, the story is that he hated Shakespeare because he didn't want Shakespeare to be his rival for like the greatest of all time. But I didn't know that he doubted that Shakespeare was Shakespeare. I didn't mean to interrupt. Keep going. Uh, George Bernard Shaw, Voltaire, and Tolkien. Tolkien! No I know, way! I know, you have to raise an eyebrow. I yes, was reading you this do. book, just having the scales fall from my eyes, thinking, Tolkien? Tolstoy? These and are the heavy end, hitters. Yeah, the end of, of Neville Gwynne's book, it's very interesting. He often hands over to authorities to argue on his behalf. The yeah. last five or six pages are simply from Tolstoy's critical essay on Shakespeare, where Tolstoy sets out why he doesn't think there could have been a Stratford Shakespeare. Really? And were those, mm. did you find those convincing? Yes, I did. What I don't, what I couldn't, like, I could not decisively say, yes, it's Francis Bacon. I don't right, know right. about that. I no longer think it could be an unknown man from Stratford. You, you, you buy one part of Gwen's argument that... You, you're not so sure about the bacon part, the positive part, but the critical part, like it's this glove maker's son and he mm. like went to London, rose in prominence, and from nowhere he became the greatest poet in the English language. That part you don't, you don't buy anymore. No. And I'm really with Gwen in his argument in that he's saying 
we're never going to be able to to abolish that lie if it's a lie because an entire town's heritage and oh, wow. tourist income is built on it. So you'd have to literally go out into the streets and take down street signs. Right. And academics would have to sort of renounce and recant huge swathes of their careers. And this won't happen. Right. So I, I, I think we probably will be stuck with the Stratford Shakespeare because it's a, it's a popular myth. Right. Right. I'll we, tell you, built it. <laughs> when I read Bill Bryson's book, his little biography of Shakespeare, he was emphatic about how little we knew. And that surprised me. It sounds like in the way that you were surprised by this book. I was listening to it and I thought, we don't know anything about the man. No, which is astonishing when you think of how much we know about his contemporaries. Right. The other thing that fascinated me in Gwyn's book is the, the attention he pays to particular words. So apparently, the Stratford Shakespeare was never even mentioned until the 1700s. I think it's the 1760s, where an actor talks about the bard mm. of Stratford-upon-Avon. Mm. And then Gwyn gives a little etymology of the word bard, which he thinks is unusual to be used in conjunction with a playwright. Okay. And one of the meanings of the word bard is a rind of bacon. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's really clever. It's quite clever, isn't it? And you think someone is. is having a joke. Yeah. And then the actual name Shakespeare in the, um, in the folio, the 1623 folio, right, right. is written hyphenated, Shakespeare, which suggests that it was viewed as a pseudonym and Pallas Athene, the goddess of wisdom, is always depicted as carrying a spear. And so the joke huh. would be, I, I shake my spirit ignorance, the, oh. the mysterious author and wit who produced this play shakes his spirit ignorance. So it's quite a good pseudonym. And so that would, and that would also cover one of the remaining questions that I have, which is, Seven years after his death, his actors get together and they publish the first folio and his actors would have known him. So why would they change his name? Um, excuse me. Why would, yeah. If he was someone other than William Shakespeare, if the author was someone other than William Shakespeare, why would they change his name to Shakespeare? So they would have had to have been in on the whole, whatever we're going to call it, prank. That it's what that, yeah, that it's or bacon. mystery. Yeah, I think that's possible because if you think they're working for the king, mm -hmm. and being a member of the king's men, you would probably have been liable for treason quite a lot right. of the time, anyway. Right. So if they if they were paid to keep this secret i don't think that's hard to believe i think that's possible that it was just a rule that the identity of william shakespeare had to right. be concealed i mean i was always taught at school and university that you know the identity of playwrights just didn't matter then no one cared mm. who wrote the plays but then i think but that's not true about no. any of the other playwrights so no. why did i believe it in that case yeah right 
right. or poets, <laughs> right? Or philosophers. We all know who they are. Yeah, and we and we care because we see their biographies kind of shining some light on what they wrote. Yeah, and and, and we even end, talk about Chapman's Homer. We even know the names of the people who translated do the this. translations. Yeah. So why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't anyone care who was the author right. of, of these magnificent plays? It doesn't make sense. Sarah Jane, I'm officially disturbed. It's puzzling, isn't it? It is puzzling. It is puzzling. I really recommend the book because it's an okay. excellent summary of arguments on both sides. It's witty. It's humorous. It's How outrageous. long ago was uh, the book published? Uh, very recently. 2020. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so presumably ago. our man Gwen is still alive. Maybe it's oh, yes. He's he's still alive. He's in his 80s, I think, and he's a tremendous teacher and he's written really? many books which I think lots of um classical Christian schools and homeschool parents would would really benefit from. He's written one on grammar, he's written one on handwriting, he's written a history of the kings and queens of England. Um to help with learning by heart. Oh wow! Um, he's he's a very scholarly man, and he's I wonder written if he a has brilliant a podcast microphone. I wonder if we can get him on the show. <laughs> you could speak to him. I'm sure <laughs> I'll you could. reach out to him. Yeah, he's also a very good Latin teacher. So oh um, wow, he's I've he's never met him or spoken to him, but I'm much in awe of him. Sarah Jane, thank you so much for bringing this to our attention. I think I'm not going to sleep well tonight. I'm going to be preoccupied thinking about like rehearsing all the arguments against what we just talked about that I can't summon right now. Um, but this is really, this is eye-opening and a little bit startling. And I'm, I'm grateful for you to come on the show. I feel a little naive. Um, I just want to reassure everyone that it's okay. That yeah. We, yeah. we still have our William Shakespeare. It just yeah. that might not have been his real name. <laughs> that might have been his nickname. Let's call it yes. his nickname. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much for the time. And I'm looking forward to having you back sometime soon. Yes, it would be great to speak about more Shakespeare plates. Absolutely. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Sarah Jane. You are the soul of the age. None of your poems or your plays will ever carry your name. Promise me you'll keep our secret safe. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.